Welcome to another week of Pastor's Class. As we are coming to the end, I think we have this one and two more uh, weeks before Thanksgiving. And uh, we are coming to the end of this study on respectable sins. And so this week we're going to look at judgmentalism and the sins of the tongue, things we say. So these are connected in how we look at others and how we think of them in maybe a judgmental way and then how it comes out of our mouth uh, and what we say towards others can be critical uh, coming from that judgmental spirit. And really judgmentalism is one of those that can, the, the reason it's respectable is it can be cloaked in so many, you know, noble things. You might, you might take judgmentalism and, and make it uh, because you're passionate for truth. You stand for things that are right. And so you walk around being judgmental towards others, but in, in reality, you're cloaking that and telling others you're just a person who stands for things that are uh, right. And so judgmentalism has a way about, uh, you know, being respectable because you, it, more than anything, instead of it just flying under the radar, it actually is is turned into some sort of noble uh, cause. And this is, uh, we'll get to this in a moment, this would have been the, the, exactly what the Pharisees did in the Bible. And they walked around and created these laws over and, over and above the Bible and started to place them on everybody and created this extra law. When they did that, they were judgmental towards others and turned it into a noble cause, into a religious activity. And so judgmentalism has a way about working in our lives like this. And so before we get there, I, I just want to encourage you again, because I, I know I, I get this feedback as folks read this book or walk through this study, that, that sometimes uh, this can be a bit discouraging. You can feel as if the, it kind of beats you up a little bit because you just, you, you learn so much of how you sin. But, but don't forget that, that our sin actually hurts us. It's something detrimental to our abundant life in Christ. And so the more that that sin can be exposed and you can root it out, the, the more hopeful you are to change. And so th this, while maybe like surgery is painful, hopefully out of it you come healthier and stronger and it's a blessing to uh, no longer walk in these sins. So. So while it may be in the uh, short term feel a little um, intense or sometimes discouraging, it's actually something that's a, a great blessing to be able to identify these sins and to deal with them because they are hurting me and you. And this one, this first one here, judgmentalism hurts a lot of the folks that are around us. So let's, let's kind of work our way up. I want to first deal with sources of judgmentalism. Where does it come from? Where can we draw um, our judgmental thoughts? Where do they come from? They come from first opinions. You know, we, we are people of opinions. We have lots of thoughts. And if you've learned anything uh, this political season is that there's a whole lot of opinions had by a whole lot of people. And an opinion is just simply making a judgment. You're looking at something uh, thinking on that thing and then making a judgment about it. And so it's a pretty easy jump to jump from an opinion to a judgment to then judgmentalism. 
That, that's when you begin to take your opinions and put them on others. If you've ever had a child, uh, you learned about this fairly early on. Uh, I learned the term mommy wars. It's where anytime uh, you're raising a child and you begin when they're young, there are methods and ways by which you should raise your children. And there, there comes this battle between different parents who feel passionately about how they're going to raise their child. And it starts from the very beginning, how you set up a sleep schedule or how you're going to swaddle them at night or how you do this or that. It's very, from the very beginning when you have a baby. But even as they grow up, how you discipline them, how you uh, handle them with extracurricular activities, how you handle an allowance, when do you get them a phone? What do you, there's so many different ages and so many different decisions. But, but pretty quickly, as a parent, it's easy to take what your opinion of how you should raise a child and begin to cast that on everyone else. So here, here's where judgmentalism comes in. It's sourced in an opinion you have about how something should be done and then it is placed on everyone around you. You walk around, hmm, man, look at that parent. Look how they handle things. There's no way they're, they're parenting their children, right? You, you begin to cast opinion and judgment on those around you. And so that, that happens with the level of opinion, but then it also happens with a, a little more spiritual level, a, a conviction. This meaning something that you hold dearly. This isn't just a judgment or an opinion uh, that you hold lightly. This is a deeply held opinion. Something that if you were to violate this, you would believe you are sinning and doing wrong. For the example of an opinion earlier, it might just be something if I violate it, I'm just changing my mind. But if I know I have a conviction about something, I believe something is right or wrong, I know that this is something that if I do it, that I'm violating my conscience. I have this deep conviction about it. The, the Bible talks about this in the book of James where he says, for, for a man who knows uh, that, that they're sinning, if they know something's sin and then they do that thing, then, then for them it's sin. So if you internally know before God that if you were to do something, you, you just know it's not right for you, then that's sin. And there are things in which our own conscience or conviction goes beyond maybe the clear biblical text to where you just know, I'm not supposed to do that. That's something I don't need to be doing. But, but just because you have that feeling, that doesn't mean you place it on everyone else. Because at the core, and let me define it this way, at the core, we're called to distinguish between what's in the Bible clearly, and then from that, we develop things we know are right and wrong. So there's biblical, clear commands, and then above that, there's these convictions or you know, these things that are a violating of your conscience. And for you, you know these are right and wrong things to do. And there's a whole list of these things that are over and above what the Bible would have. And for you, you know you shouldn't do them. But the challenge becomes when the Pharisees did the same thing in the Bible is they took the things that were, uh, they thought might be good safeguards or things they shouldn't do over and atop, the, over and atop God's laws. Those became 
laws for everyone else. They put them on everyone else. Look at Romans 14. The pastor just preached on this a few weeks ago. I'm not going to try to unpack the whole passage. Thought he did a tremendous job showing how we should handle conviction. But look at Romans 14 verse 4. It says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So who are you to be the one that passes judgment on how things work? It's purely based on what God thinks about a person. So your, your job is not to go over and above what the Bible says to place rules on someone. So, so just think about it this way. If you were to look at someone and think, that person's doing something wrong, and you were to go to them and tell them what you're doing is wrong, are you then speaking and telling them something's wrong that even the Bible has not told them that? So you don't want to ever be stricter than God himself is on his own people. So make sure that when you place a conviction, it, you may have it yourself, which is fine, but to place it on others, that's not what we're called to do. And so let me give you a little bit of example. So, and let me show you how we fail in this area. So we talked about the sources, convictions, opinions, but now let's look at the types of judgmentalism. The types, and this will help flesh it out a little bit more for you. Uh, one way in which we uh, fail, that we fall off one side of the horse, there's really two pieces here, is the law. I talked about it with the Pharisees. Look at Romans 14 again. I'll read verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So there's one who's a vegetarian, who eats only vegetables, and there's one that thinks it's absolutely okay to eat whatever they want. And he's saying that these are two different convictions that each of these individuals have, thankful to the Lord that they're trying to follow the Lord, and they believe this is the right path for them. But they need to be careful not to place their conviction on the other person, or even greater, the sin here is judgmentalism. And it's not just that you are a law person, like he's talking about here. So in other words, it's not that you have a rule that you want everybody to follow and you judge those that follow. It can also flip, and here's the second word I want to give you here, the, the error is the freedom side. You may be the one who believes you're absolutely free to do that, and then you judge the ones who have the conviction in that area. I, a good example, I mean, there's a thousand of these I think an easy one, just a few days ago, we, as a culture, celebrated Halloween on October 31st. And, you know, Halloween has this kind of back and forth. There were, I knew families right there in my neighborhood that, you know, they didn't trick or treat or didn't want to celebrate. They feel like for them, as Christian, it's, it, it's a pagan holiday. There's these there are these pagan symbols that happen during Halloween, and they feel like for their family, that's not the right thing to do. And then some families feel like they can put a costume on their children, mine included. We dressed up and went trick-or-treating, and kids didn't have some sort of demonic costumes on. You know, my daughter's a mermaid, and, you know, there's all these kind of things we're doing. And so we participated, but we didn't participate in some of the darker parts that some people do with Halloween. So all that just to say, you might be a Christian and feel like you can go trick-or-treating. You might be a Christian and feel like you can't. 
But I'm not going to walk out there and place judgment on my neighbor or my Christian neighbor that feels like this isn't right for them. I, if that's where they feel, before the Lord, that's what they need to do. Thankful they do that. Uh, and that's, they need to try to honor the Lord in their life. So even with freedom, me feeling like I can do that, does, that doesn't mean I judge the people who feel like they have the conviction. It's, it's a variety of any sort of Christian way in which we try to live out in this world, from how we might dress for church to how we spend our money. I think about spending money is a similar way to do it. You might feel as if it's a sin for you to spend a certain amount of money on a particular item, and then you see another Christian doing that very same thing. And so it's hard for you to look at that person and not judge them for spending that money in that way. Uh, you, there's all kinds of ways in which you can build these, uh, you know, extra biblical laws and then judge other individuals for it. And so judgmentalism, sourced in our opinions that we turn into truth, they're sourced in our convictions that we try to place on everybody around us. And we need to learn that both those that hold the stronger convictions that are law-like, if they feel like that is for them, then praise God, they're trying to seek the Lord. And then some people feel like that's not a problem. And so what we as Christians are able to function in this world with grace and not judge others. So let me just finish with this. Two common areas, he gave these in the book, two common areas in which we are judgmental. Two common areas. The first one's doctrinal judgment. When we are judgmental in doctrinal ways. Now, a lot of times we don't have this problem because we take doctrine lightly and don't think much of it. So then we don't judge anybody for doctrine. It becomes the, as long as you love Jesus, uh, then we'll take you. And as we all love Jesus together, there's no sort of hard doctrinal lines. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. That's probably going a little far. We need to hold some things tightly. A good model for this is the theological triage uh, from Albert Moeller. If you're not familiar with it, Google it and read a little bit more about it. I'll just introduce you to the basic idea. There's first order doctrines, second order doctrines, and then these tertiary or kind of third order doctrines that you find in his model. So he, he breaks it up into three levels. The first level is are all the ones that divide us from all religions, meaning that these are the truths we would die for. Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross for our sins and it is only by faith alone in Christ alone that we are saved. And there is no compromise on those truths. And if you compromise, then you are not a Christian. That, that's, that's kind of the the hardcore, we, we draw these hard lines around that. Then there's a second level doctrines. And what do, you, what do we mean by that are these things that divide denominations. Things that maybe mean that there's a, there's a Presbyterian brother or sister in Christ who I know fully believes the gospel, but might baptize an infant. They don't believe the baptism saves them, uh, so it doesn't affect the first order of belief about salvation, but they just have some different practices in the church. And I would look at that brother or sister in Christ and feel like they're a Christian, but we just can't go to church together. And so I have to be careful about my judgmentalism there. And then the third level, the, high, uh, the tertiary doctrines might be things like the end times. We would, we would disagree about whether Christ is going to come back on, you know, 
in the middle of the tribulation, the beginning of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation. And we could talk through that, but these are doctrines that shouldn't divide us. We should be able to have a conversation about that within the church and not hold that so tightly that we would cast you out and say you're not a Christian if we differ on some regards there. So the point being, that three-tiered theological triage helps us not uh, be judgmental in our doctrine. We're able to distinguish what are the areas that we really should be judgmental, the, the areas we should say these are the hard lines, that being core gospel, doctrinal, foundational things. And then outside of that, we can be uh, gracious to others to hold different opinions. And so we as Christians should hold those uh, lightly. And so uh, for us, these are the ways in which we should handle doctrine. A second way in which we should uh, watch our judgmentalism is a critical spirit. We should not have a critical spirit, meaning that we're not uh, fault finders walking around uh, looking for faults in others. Now, this critical spirit, uh, it will lead us into the second half of our teaching here, looking at the sins of the tongue, our speech, because from the critical spirit, this judgmental heart will come our speech. And I'm going to expand further on Ephesians 4.29 in a moment that speaks about when we build others up instead of tearing them down. But this type of, this type of person who is a critical person, someone who is always trying to find fault, oftentimes is doing it to make themselves feel better. If you find yourself doing this, it, it might be because you're insecure about your abilities or your job or your relationships. And so in order for you, when you're around others, in order for you to feel secure in who you are, you've got to bring others down to your level. So you're constantly finding faults. You're always criticizing others. Um, and you know, one of the things I've found, if somebody is always criticizing other people to me, it's pretty... It, it's a high likelihood that they are criticizing you to other people. They're speaking ill of you around other people. They are a fault finder. They are focusing on the negative. So, so we've got to be careful here to not begin to be so negative that it becomes a dominating factor in life. So don't hold a standard when you criticize others that God hasn't put in place for them. You want to be gracious just like God. Now, parents, I've already mentioned children, but parents, I, I just want to say this. You've got to be really careful about being overly critical of your children. You need to learn to be an encourager and a cheerleader, and it's, it's a dangerous spot to be to always criticize everything they do. So you've got to be really careful as a parent, spouses, family members. You've got to be really careful uh, to always be criticizing your spouse. Uh, you know, maybe it's at work and if you're a supervisor or you work with some people, you've got to be really careful because you may be, oftentimes the discernment is this gift, spiritual gift, but it gets disguised, like I talked about earlier, of this kind of like this noble thing that you have, but it's actually, you're just negative. You just criticize everybody. So you need to learn to not be so critical. And so judgmentalism shows up in these areas of critical spirit, of a doctrinal, kind of looking down on others. There's multiple other ways in which judgmentalism might 
show up in your life. But, but you must be careful not to take your opinions and your convictions and place them on everybody or that you're around. But right out of the sin of judgmentalism comes the sins of the tongue. Because out of the heart flows uh, the, the tongue. When, when the heart overflows, you speak. And so what you say be, just becomes a reflection of what you already are thinking. And there's much more than just judgmentalism that comes out of the heart. There's all kinds of things, but that kind of critical spirit shows up in many ways. So we're going to use, as he used in the book, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, as our guiding verse for this conversation. Let me read it to you. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk. It says there, is, there should be no corrupting talk that comes out of your mouth. You need to guard about what you say. And in 2020 and in our world today, as I was reading this chapter and just processing what it means to speak with corrupting talk, it is, it's one of those sins we have become very comfortable with in our culture. Th this kind of harsh speak, it's just a normal thing that we do. And we as Christians probably need to take a pause and look at how we speak and think, are we just mirroring the culture or are we godly in how we act? And man, this was, a, this was convicting to think through my speech here. So let, let me just walk through a couple of these common areas that we sin with our tongue and with our speech. The first one, and probably the one you maybe already thought of, is gossip. Gossip is when we spread unfavorable information about someone else, even if that information's true. Now, sometimes it's rumor. Sometimes we love to tell a story and half the, who knows if it's true. And sometimes the less true it is, the more fun it is to tell because it's fantastic and crazy. And so there's a bit of, um, with, with gossip, there's something uh, sinfully indulging kind of satisfaction that you get out of it. It's kind of like uh, staying up late at night and eating a whole tub of ice cream. You, you, you enjoy the sweet taste. It makes you feel terrible and you know you should not do it. it it's the same feel that you get this level of satisfaction about telling somebody something that's scintillating and interesting and, and really is, is tearing someone else, uh, their character, or it's unfavorable to who they are. Now, we as Christians, we have a, we have a Christian way of doing this. We, we like to share it as a prayer request. Now, there are true times that we should share how to pray for others, but sometimes we share a prayer request just as a means of wanting to gossip. It's a sad way we do it. A good way to gauge it is have you actually prayed about it? Are you really worried about whether that other person is praying about it? Or is it simply just 
you want to tell this thing, and the easiest way to do it is say, hey, I just need you to be praying for this person, and then you go into whatever unfavorable uh, detail. But in this case, you need to think about this verse and how you should speak, and start thinking about some of your conversations with your friends, your family members, or what you're having at work, and think about how you speak about others when they're not around. Could you, could you say the same things about them if they were standing in front of you? Man, this is convicting to me sometimes to think about, am I prepared for everybody that I talk about to be in the room when I'm saying what I'm saying about them? Am I that honest? Am I, or am I a person that's going around and sharing information about them that, that I would never say in front of them because it's gossip. It's spreading these unfavorable details about them. We should be people that extend grace and build others up. So next time you're tempted to go and say that thing to someone else, you, you need to watch what you say. And then let me just give one more little piece to this. Part of our uh, indulging in gossip isn't always giving the gossip. Sometimes it's receiving it. I'll never forget when I was in college, I had a friend who uh, I admire because I think that he practices this verse. And I remember uh, wanting to tell him some sort of detail about one of our friends. And man, it was, it was a good one. I, there was a bit of joy I had in talking about this friend. I wanted to tell him about it. We wanted, I thought we were gonna laugh about it. It was gonna be, uh, I was really looking forward to sharing this detail. And I remember when I gave it to him, he just, he just kind of deadpanned me, just stared me down. It landed flat and then we just moved on. It was like he had no interest in engaging in any of that conversation. Took all the fun out of it for me. I mean, I didn't enjoy telling him that at all. I kind of felt bad. Got done and I was like, man. And then it was strange. Just out of his, he never said a word to me. He just gave me no uh, reaction to what I said. And to this day, I still remember it. And I think, man, I, I felt bad. I walked away and I thought, you know what? I shouldn't be saying that about that person. He didn't even have to say anything to me because he didn't participate in listening to the gossip. And so one of our sins isn't just simply saying it. We're the one that's ready as soon as they're coming. We got our ears open. We're laughing along with the story. And we sometimes need to be the one that ends the gossip and is not willing to listen. You just don't want to have any part of it. And so we've got to learn how to shut it down when we hear it as well. There's a second uh, way in which we're corrupting in our speech. There's lots of ways you can do it. But in this one, it's slander is one of the ones he points out. It's making a false statement or misrepresentation about another person that defames or damages the person's reputation. It's the other one you're just telling a detail. This one, you're tearing them down. Oftentimes, you're taking it out of context. You're using a quote that if, if it were to be in context, it would probably make more sense. Maybe you're telling only half the story. For, for a lot of times when we slander somebody, we are uh, giving them wrong motives. We're, we're imputing these wrong motives to what they were trying to do to say, 
they were doing this and this was the purpose behind it. This is why it's so important to think, if that person in the room, would I say this? Would I, would I declare they were this um, vile or malicious in why they did it? No, if they were in the room, you would probably give them a lot more grace. Uh, it's much easier to slander someone when they're not able to defend themselves. We as Christians are tempted to slander others' sin. In other words, they might be in sin, but we're, we're willing to exaggerate that sin. We'll, we'll speak about it worse than it might have actually been. We'll do it to gain an advantage. Now, this is the temptation. You're at work. You've got a coworker. Maybe you, in some ways, compete for the attention of your boss. Uh, maybe it's at school. There's another student in the classroom. Maybe it's a friend group and you have a friend that you both are friends with, and you're competing for the attention of someone, and the natural temptation is to go behind their back, speak to the other person, and tear them down. All for the purpose of your own advancement. And you'll be willing to exaggerate the sins that they commit, to even speak about their lack of commitment to the Lord. You'll, you'll even be willing to lie sometimes. And here's what I mean by lie. You'll You'll tell part of the truth. In other words, you'll tell a portion of the story and leave out a portion of the story, and it sounds way worse. You're trying to just give one angle of it all. And if the whole story were told, it wouldn't be seen the same way. Maybe it's a little white lie. You need to ask yourself this question. When you're talking about this other person, is it necessary for me to say this? That's why he says in Ephesians 4, he says, uh, only such as for uh, building up, then he says, as fits the occasion. This means that when we speak about someone, it needs to be necessary. We need to make it to where when I'm willing to talk about someone, it has a necessary purpose. Now, maybe there is a time where you're at your job and you know that someone is stealing from the company and you need to go to your boss. Well, that's necessary. You're not just unnecessarily tearing them down, looking to get an advantage. That's a different thing. But, but there are times we just, we just want to say, hey, you know, you know what? You know about him? He, he's lazy. He, he does this. And it's just a natural little teardown that we're giving. It's not necessary to say. Is it kind? Would you, when you're done, when you, when you were speaking about that person, would I have been able to say you were kind in your words? I still think there's a way if, for the example we just gave about somebody stealing from your company and you've got to go to your boss and talk about it. There's a way to do that and still do it in a kind manner. That you're brokenhearted for it and you don't want to have to do it and, and, and you don't really get a any pleasure out of it. There's a kind way of doing some of this. There's, there's an unkind way that gets a bit of joy out of it all and seeing them torn down and, and how it plays out. Are you kind? And all of this comes from the heart. Just like we said from the very beginning, you, you're not just looking to change your words here. Because if you're just focusing on the words, you've missed the point here. You've really, it's, it's like the, the analogy of the car, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you see the, 
check engine light comes on, you reach over, you grab a hammer, you smash the check engine light out, and you go, ah, fixed. Took the check engine light out. Well, if you just stop talking about it while your heart is still just as malicious and slanderous and envious as it was before, I don't know if we've actually changed much. So we need to source all of this where you can see what you're saying about someone, talking about someone, how you're thinking in a judgmental way. You can source it all back to your heart. And I think the question would be, what are your motives? Because the goal in your speech needs to be the same goal in your heart. Let's read Ephesians 4 again. Think about how we should be in our speech and we'll end with this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So when you speak, it needs to build others up. It needs to be appropriately timed. It's necessary and it needs to give grace to those that are hearing. Your goal in your speech is to be a gracious person who's kind, only does, speaks what needs to be said, and is building others up. You're encouraging them. You're strengthening them. You're a cheerleader for them in their walk with the Lord. And so for us, our goal is the building up of others. We're gracious people because we've been extended the grace of Christ. So this week, as you think about what you say, how you're thinking about others, may the grace that Christ has extended to you and His kindness be the fuel for how you are a gracious and kind spirit, both internally in your heart, but also in what you say to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kindness shown to us in Christ and Lord, how he granted us uh, grace and a pardon for our sin, even though we didn't deserve it. And so, Lord, as we're around others, may we be gracious people to our friends, our family, our co-workers. And Lord, help us to guard our mouths. And from that, Lord, understand exactly how we need to guard our hearts as well so that we might love you and love other people, both in our heart and also with our words. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.